<laughs> yeah, hi, I'm Maggie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Maggie. Oh, by the grace of God and all of you, I've not had a drink since 8-1 of 81. And if any of you are surprised about that, you can only imagine how surprised I am about that. I'd love to tell you that it was because I had a great sense of poise and goodwill and that everything worked around the way that we wanted it to. <coughs> Excuse me. I would definitely be lying at that point. I don't think I have done anything right in this program. I mean, this is, I look at this and I am just truly amazed here. I would love to pontificate about how to be sober. I just can tell you what not to do. And then all of you kind of brought me through about what to do. So for that, I'm truly, truly grateful. There's this one thing. I didn't know whether to bring this up or not, but I came across this under my drafts. And this is about how my my life really has been. Uh, if you look at this picture, this is this great expanse of a road, and they were going too fast. And if you look at the picture, you can see where this driver broke through the guardrail, and on the right side of the culvert where people are standing, pointing. The pickup was traveling about 75 miles an hour from right to left when it crashed through the guardrail. It flipped end over end, bounced off across the culvert outlet, landed right side up on the left side of the culvert, facing the opposite direction from which the driver was traveling. The 22-year-old driver and his 18-year-old passenger were unhurt except for minor cuts and bruises. And I go, oh, gee, you know, this this is me. This is truly me. Um, I've had a few bruises here and there, but the real truth of the matter is, when you look at this, this is amazing to see this this whole thing. He flipped like what, two, three times on this culvert, and I mean the the, the drain is like 20 feet deep, and my gosh, it was so close. And I'm thinking, shoot, he's on the wrong side going. He's not hurt at all, except when you get into the real gist of this thing. They were unbelievably lucky. This is them way up there, and this is the canyon right down there. This is a 1,500-foot drop, you know, and that's how my life has been. That's how it's been. I didn't realize. You know, I talk to my students, and you go from unconscious incompetency to a point where you, you, you realize that you are consciously incompetent. You know just how bad you've become. Before that, it's great. You're clueless. You don't know that you don't know, and everything's fine and good. It's like these kids right here. They didn't know, and I came in thinking, oh, gee, I have a few issues I have to take care of, but I did not come in thinking it really was this bad. And you get to this conscious incompetence, and all of a sudden, you know, I did my first fourth step, and I look at that. I remember the gut level, the visceral feelings of doing this and talking my God to a priest and the priest relapsed after that so you can tell it was all my fault <laughs> truly and I look back on this and that it was as good as I could do it truly was and unfortunately it was a great fourth step for my ex-husband it had very little to do with me, but I didn't know that. I did what I could to get out of treatment, and I'd love to say that I was in inpatient treatment. 
I was so broke I couldn't afford inpatient treatment, and they were trying to get this new pilot outpatient program going. By the grace of God and a whole bunch of other people, they let me come in. I had more one-on-one -on -one than any inpatient person ever would have had. They were just trying to get the, the whole program going. And I had um, three chokes of a joint one time, and this cute little teddy bear of a, of a counselor jumped over the freaking desk at me and said, what in the world is wrong with you? Get that. And he used expletives like, I wouldn't get this chip. <laughs> you know, it was really bad. And he goes, get out of here. I've had enough of you. And I'm going, good man, who do you think you're talking to? I'd like to speak with your supervisor. Thank you very much. And the supervisor happened to be not available till the following day. And, um, it was late in the day, and he, he told me that um, they would give me one more chance. And 18 months later, I thanked this director for believing in me, for having the faith that I would come through. And he laughed like crazy. He goes, you don't know, do you? You don't know? What, what are you talking about? And he goes, the only person who wanted to keep you was this one counselor who jumped over the desk at me. Everybody else wanted me out. I was not compliant. You know, I couldn't tell that. I was terrible. And he understood. And he banked on me. And I mean, they wanted to get the program going. Don't get me wrong, but that was God doing for me what I could not do for myself. And I did not even know how bad I was. So that unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence and that is so very very uncomfortable to know that you screw up on a regular basis and you can't do anything about this and finally if i try hard enough and if i effort long enough and if i do all the things i'm supposed to be doing if i do this i can get to a semblance of competence is it comfortable though because it's always trying it's a lot of work to try and be a decent human being after all that it really is and I didn't do it well. There are some people we were talking against here. There are some people that just fall into this program. You tell them to do step one, okay. And you tell them to do step two, okay. Step three, step, no problems whatsoever. I sponsored a woman one time about, oh, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago. Well, yeah, 12, 15 years ago. Uh, She's got 16 years in the program now, and she's up in Illinois and still doing wonderfully. I asked her to do a fourth step. She did a thorough fourth step. I mean, she did one of the, I don't know about things like that because I was always edging, always trying to make it look good, always hoping that you would accept what you were seeing rather than who I was. And I mean, the whole thing was one big facade for years and years and years and years. Here's this thing, wrong radio and rebellion, it says, you an alcoholic? I don't believe it. Sure, I've seen you type several times, but you know alcoholic. You kidding? You an alcoholic? And everybody I had talked with until the very last year of my drinking was indeed sure that I could not possibly have a, a problem. But you know, I'm, I'm talking to maybe the wrong people. Uh, we buried my brother from this disease. And that kills me because this guy was, he was strikingly handsome. 
and he was so outgoing, and he could always talk with people. Just a great salesperson, somebody you felt comfortable with, and he was beautifully appointed, and he dressed beautifully. I could never do all of those things. And we buried him because he drank himself for 10 solid days. It took 10 solid days of his drinking for his heart to go out so then they could call it a heart attack. We're at the funeral home. Lavish coffin. Pretty coffin. I mean, this thing cost a boatload. And <laughs> to make it look good at all costs, I'm telling you. And the flowers were exquisite. This is before we knew about it. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was wonderful. Everything was spectacular. We had gone through the arrangement twice. We were going to go through the third time. I said, Mom, I've got to go. And she goes, and where did you go that would be so important? I said, I've got to get to a meeting. And she goes, when are you going to stop going to those meetings? I mean, her son is dead from this disease. And when am I going to stop going to these meetings? And that's kind of the filter I had from years and years and years. People tell me I didn't look drunk. People tell me I didn't look rich. People tell me I was functioning well. And if you look at some of the quote-unquote results, the metrics, all of the things that we gauge ourselves by at times, they were great. I was the youngest manager this company ever had. I had a 201% reorder in the lowest markdowns in the company, and I managed people who were twice my age and and in. I knew exactly how to go about Approaching people, I'd watched my dad, I'd watched my brother, I'd watched all these people who, who, you know, eventually were dead. I think about my dad. My dad was the kindest man I had ever known, and I do believe he was kind. He was great. And I do remember one time, um, this glimmer of reality kind of flowing in. I don't know if he was alcoholic. I truly don't. But I do know that there was a strain on both sides. Of my family. My dad, this banker, this rock, this guy who would take me out and teach me how to ride a bike and then go back to work, this guy who would take me around for the empty time to teach me how to ski, this guy who would sit here and give me the greatest wild rock speeches, this guy who was the vice president early and I brought me in as though, you know, I was a son. I didn't know some of these discriminations because it I was just incompetent. I didn't realize all of these This guy felt so sorry for me because this is the crisis of my life when you're a kid. I had to go and get my ears pierced. Everybody else in the whole world had their ears pierced but me. And Janet Yu was the person to go to. And we had tried this and six times before something had come up at the last minute. Now, I had geared myself up for this, and I was ready. And I let down again, and let down again. So the urgent tension was almost palpable when I walked over there. And Mrs. Yu said, oh, I'm sorry, she's got to go to Bible school. And I come home, now, I mean, I am just beside myself. And my dad looked at me and goes, for heaven, I'll pierce your ears. I'm thinking, and he did. He did. And I thought, oh my gosh, well, after the first one, I definitely numbed up for the second one. You know, I didn't think he was going to do it. And uh, I had to have him re-pierce later because he did a terrible job of it. But, you know, he did it. And I, I'm just amazed at that. 
Okay, fast forward 20 years later, I go, yeah, I still remember when you would sit there and do all these things for me, and I thank you so much. I'm glad I got a chance to say that. But I remember particularly when you had to pierce my ears because I said, yeah, I was ripped that day, wasn't I? I had no idea. I had no idea. But that's how the whole thing went. So we were talking about perceptions. I'm going to give you my perception of my sobriety. And anybody else who's been in the room anywhere near me could disagree, and I'd probably say you're right, too. But this is it. You know, everything I have ever done, I was taught to make it look great. We always had better clothes. We always had a little bit more manners. We always made sure that everybody looked great. And when things were not absolutely perfect, it was not just unfortunate, it was a catastrophe. So I did not want to look bad. For me to look bad in front of you, for me to tell you that I've got some issues here and there, that was just totally unacceptable. And I went through life that way for a long time. I also met who I thought was the man of my dreams when I was about what, 20, 22 or 23. And I remember thinking, this is the guy. And he sat there and he asked me to live with him. Well, you know, we don't do that kind of thing. And I said, I don't know. I'm going. Well, he got a, a job down in Texas and uh, worked for a very prestigious firm. And he checked a couple times to see how I was doing. Instead of saying, gee, I really miss you. Instead of saying, hey, this doesn't feel good without you. I made sure that he realized right as he was going off that I had another date, that I had all of these other things in my life. Didn't bother me at all. And it just about tore my heart out. You know, so fast forward, we married the next guy that asked me to get married. And he was a nice guy. Oh, he was a nice guy. There is no doubt about it. He just wasn't the right guy. And it was so inappropriate. And I was looking at this, I didn't ask for any help. So my wedding was, it was okay. It could have been much better. My mother was very disappointed in it, I guarantee you. <laughs> uh, she was disappointed in anything that I did. And uh, can I tell that story? This is a wonderful story. We were talking about our mothers a couple of days ago, my, my good friend and I, and there was nothing ever good enough. You know, you always have to strive for more, for more, for more to make it look good, which does terrible things to an alcoholic. And a couple of times we were talking about Big Bang, where Shelton's uh, mother comes in and she says, oh, and uh, Leonard's mother comes in and she's always psychoanalyzing everybody. And the best that he can get out of her is this acceptable. And he'll go for anything for acceptable. Well, this woman gave a terrific talk. A couple of people had those real aha moments, and a couple of them had the big sigh of relief. Oh, yeah, I'm here. I'm not alone. It was a great talk. And I came up there and said, hey, that was really adequate. And certainly you could see the fun in that. And she asked me the next week, was it only adequate? Was I really... It was terrific, you know, and we don't understand. We do not, as alcoholics, understand when something's good. It's really hard for us to internalize it. 
thing, you know, I, I always looked to metrics. I always looked for things. I always looked for all this. And I had a very skewed background because I don't know what normal is. I know what I used to aspire to. But I never understood the idea of really sitting down and chatting with people. We care all the time about our defects now because we know what they are. Um, we have a, a twice a month girls group that we tell each other things that I'm sure nobody else in our families know about. I mean, you know, we just kind of look the way that we are. There is a great feeling of relief in there. There is a great feeling of good in there. And somehow or other, through all of this, you all started to let me see just a little glimmer. Huge, huge for me, minor for you, little glimmer that maybe I had some goodness in me because up until then I felt absolutely dead. We talked a, a couple um, weeks ago, I was with a bunch of people and they were supposed to have a couple newcomers come to dinner. Well, at the last minute, we had all these other people at dinner, and the newcomers couldn't make it. Oh, well, well, we still had a great time anyway. And this guy says, you know, your eyes really sparkle. And he was being kind. He went, this wasn't a come on. I've known him for years and years and years. And he's a one, he, he just got a, another fellow endowment. You know, he's brilliant and all that. And I thought, well, that's really nice that he would say that. And I remember how hard I had tried because at the very beginning I had this notice right before I got sober. Please God, for the last time. Right before I got sober for the last time. And I knew this thing was going to be taken and I was trying to look as good as I possibly can. And I had black and white makeup on because I knew that's what the, the uh, uh, publisher would do. And no, I knew all these tricks, and honest to God, you talk about fish eyes, those dead fish eyes, no matter how hard, no matter how engaging they are, there was nothing, there was nothing left in there. And sometimes, in fact, some of you saw me this morning, it's pathetic, you know, sometimes I come in here looking like I don't know what, and sometimes I come in here crying like crazy, and sometimes I come in here with all this joyful stuff, and sometimes I just come in, you know, and it's all okay. This is a little bit of glimmer of fear, you know, so that's conscious competence. And if I just work with this long enough, every once in a while, somebody will say something, and they'll say, oh, that was really nice of you. And, you know, I wasn't nice. I was calculated. I was always going to, I was always trying to get that you wanted this. <laughs> I was always trying to get maximum benefit for my efforts. I wanted to make sure everybody saw what I did. I wanted to make sure that uh, everybody approved of what I was doing. I wanted I wanted that so very badly because I didn't feel that that was ever going to happen. And um, I had gotten married to a wonderful guy who wasn't along those lines. Um, and I think, oh, gee, that's such a shame. But, you know, God was taking care of me because it's one thing that this guy could do. Um, I forgot, before I got married, I could um, I could um, cultivate psilocybin better than most people. You know, so I had a whole closet full of mushrooms. And in exchange, he taught me how to take black beauty, which were, you know, the small ones and, and all that. So I learned the joy of black beauty. 
if we hadn't had this exchange, I probably would not have even been able to see Lupe Bennett. So it was a really unfortunate looking situation. But if if this hadn't happened, if I hadn't failed at this marriage, if everything hadn't been taken from me, because I was a top agent or selling real estate, and, you know, interest rates at that time were 18, 19, sometimes 22%, and I was still selling real estate. And then all of a sudden, one day, just like in the book, I couldn't get up. I just could not go and do battle one more day. And I let the stuff go. And I just walked away, and I... Gave him everything that we had acquired. It wasn't a lot, but it was all I had. And I went from being the top agent to living in a basement inside of six weeks. And I'm like, oh, this is terrible. Was that now? That was God's working. Because my chief competitor at Brand Y found out where I was living. And she came over to see me in this basement. And she goes, what in the heck is going on with you? And I said, I just don't care anymore. She goes, well, you have to do something. What I didn't realize is that her sister was in treatment at that time. She goes, let me, you know, what, what I need to. My son just, and her son had turned uh, to another faith, and they, they do a mission. Her son had left, and I came over to her house to help her out. So she wouldn't be lonely. And I stayed in this room, an eight by ten room, maybe it was a little larger. I don't it wasn't a big room, but it had the stupid antique cars all over it. Something for a little boy. You know, it was very appropriate. And I subjected myself to this. And then her sister comes in out of nowhere from treatment. And I didn't know what treatment was. And her sister had a problem. I'm so glad I didn't have this problem. Her sister came in. And she, she was happy. She brought life to things. She was laughing about the most outrageous things. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, it's terrible. And then, this is a tri-level house. She brings her son in. She got her kids back. That was a miracle in itself. And she's going to bring her daughter in. I said, hey, isn't this great? Well, her daughter had spina bifida. And she's a little chunky, kind of like me right now. But she's a little chunky. And we had to lug this little girl up and down three levels of stairs all the time. And this little girl was having a great time. Her son was probably one of the best adjusted kids I've ever seen in my life. And all of a sudden, we had this sense of family because I was trying to help her. Well, her sister had problems with the car every Thursday night, and I helped her get to AA. And that's how I came into AA, helping her get into AA. And I look at that, and I think, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. The audacity, the, the ego, the pride, the... Total cluelessness, unconscious incompetence. It's mess. I didn't know. I really had no clue. And then later on, I continued unconscious incompetence for a number of years. I'd love to say that I did everything by the book. And I would just test. I'd test this woman. 
Um, people would come to me with half cups of coffee, and I remember this every Thursday night, and they were very cheery, and you know, you just want to slap them. <laughs> and they'd give me these half cups of coffee while I sat in the back of this meeting, just glaring at everybody, because they were alcoholic. How pitiful for them. And awful. So, what I didn't realize is they understood I couldn't have held a cup of coffee without solving it. So I didn't know. I truly I didn't know until I talked to the director 18 months later just how bad I had been. And he told me that the guy that was in, uh, my counselor was the only one who was in my corner. I don't know what did for me, and I do not to this day know the things that are good and the things that are bad. Let me fast forward a little bit about that. What's right, what's wrong? Well, was it terrible that I had a bad marriage, I mean, nobody got divorced, and I got divorced, you know, my dad looked at me and he goes, cut your losses, and I'm going, but what am I going to do, he goes, just cut your losses, and I thought, this blows all the theory that I had had, and then I realized that, uh, that there's this thing in, in uh, the Bible and we weren't allowed to read the Bible because at that point we were considered too stupid to interpret this. That was my understanding. That's not true. But it's Second it's, uh, Timothy, I think, uh, 1 7. For God has not given us a, a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Well, I took charge of that. See, I'm smart. I'm competent. I love everybody. I'm wondering. You know, and, and I ran this through, and I tried, I don't know, four other religions trying to, to get this to work. And the religions were better, but I'm still so totally incompetent at it. And I, I, I was starting to realize just how bad I was. Um, I'd let my, my husband go. Um, I'd done what I could. Actually... I needed Alan on at that point. I got him another wife before I left. I made sure that they were together. Honestly, this is true. They still are married. They're very happy. <laughs> I do it for everybody else except for me. And then I didn't know how I was going to do this. I finally moved into a place of my own. It wasn't anything really special. But my little dog and I had a pretty good life. And I was learning to live in community because you all let me hang around long enough. And I was grateful for that. I really thought that I would be a great counselor. (laughs) And I think about that and how they must have laughed so hard behind my back at that point. But I did know that there was a possibility. So later on, I did counsel for a while. And that really made me see just how crazy most of us come in to this program. I'd love to say that we're all great, and that, you know, inside of two or three months, we make it together just fine, but it's a long process for a lot of us, simply because you probably have the same filters that I do. I thought that I knew what truth was. I don't know. I don't know what's good for me. I do not know what's bad for me. And I remember that I had a wonderful career, and I had lost the job. Well, if I didn't lose the job, what would have happened? Um, I, I made my mark and then I let it go. I, I got married and I let it go. Well, all of these things, you know, looking back, 
each time I learned a little bit, just a little bit. So I got to be a little better, a little gooder, a little whatever. And I got to be a, more of a human being, a real human being, one of those that can tell you what's actually going on, one of those that feels good, one of that hopefully can give back some of the things that she's been given because it, it, it's amazing. Um, I don't worry about looking good, and we were laughing about this because I had no idea what to be talking about. My very first talk is such a joke, and some of you here know that story. It's embarrassing, but I had tried. It was just after my first year, and I was supposed to be talking at a big meeting on Sunday morning, and I thought that I was playing Las Vegas. You know, I really put everything together. It was going to be so important, and I had practiced, and I had rehearsed it, and the inflection was fine, and everything was great, and the timing was good, and it was so contrived. It was as good as I could do, but it was contrived. And this wonderful woman by the name of Pat was sharing. She got me the most gorgeous scarf. It was terrific. I wanted to make sure that I kept busy, you know, the tension is starting to build again. What happens if I don't look good? What happens if I mess up? What happens if all of this is going around? Because alcoholics can see the negative and things immediately. They don't see any of the upsides. I was so afraid that once you knew anything about me, that you'd just kind of write me off. She had given me all of this wonderful support, terrific person. Everything should be going right. And this is when we had those tapestries, you know, years ago. I'm trying to pull out this, this nail in the wall before um, I, I go to talk, just to keep busy. I want to hang the tapestry before, so I'll have something done before I get going. And I pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled, and nothing was coming out. Well, it was a screw, and when it came out, so did half of the wall. And <laughs> this big hammer I had comes crashing down into my head. I've given myself a concussion. And I'm like this. <coughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't make it up these stairs. I'm thinking, no, but the show must go on. So I get up here and I stand up for my talk and it's on step one. How appropriate is that? I said, I've just given myself a concussion. So I guess I'm powerless over this, and I sit down. Everybody looks around. They clap, and it was the best meeting ever. You know. So I'm not important. It's important that God knows I did what I could. It wasn't good. It doesn't have to be good. What it has to be is the best I can do. And if I do that, then it's all all right. If I look at anybody else, is this going to work out well? Is this going to be what? It should be, isn't I will screw up. I tell my students, you work for excellence, not for perfection. And that seems to work pretty well for them. And as far as I know, most of them are normal folks. And I've had some really great jobs. I've had some really awful jobs. I've had uh, a marriage in between the one that um, I have now. And I thought that would be so wonderful. You know, the program is not geared.
for matchmaking. That is not the purpose of the program. Although a lot of us thought that it was for, don't you go laughing at me, some of you have done exactly the same thing. Seemed like a good idea at the time, it wasn't. However, we all live through the greatest, greatest embarrassments and we move on. After I got divorced, the week after that, week after I was divorced, we go to great couple's wedding. And they're still married. They're both in the program. It was important to me to get out of myself so at least I have this little glimmer of competence that I have to get out of myself and to go over and tell my ex, we're all over here, come join us. He came in late, he had to work, and everybody's like, oh God, what are they going to do? So I made it easy on everybody else because it's not my show, it was there. So I really got, that was a lot of confidence. You know, last week, we had to go to a very dear friend's funeral, and it was not easy. I've missed her and she was so very important to so many of us. And I ran into him, and we were just chatting, and it had dawned on me just how different it was. We were just chatting about somebody that we both loved. There was nothing left. So that finally got into unconscious incompetence. For once, I had totally gotten out of myself. For once, I had been a good human being. And for once, I think that I carried myself with grace and dignity rather than having to work at it and wonder whether or not this was going to work. It just worked. So, you know, it's a long, long haul all the way over here. I can tell you what not to do. I can give you all the metrics for success. People pay me for that. As a matter of fact, I've worked for Big Four for quite a while, and I have some nice, very nice recommendations. Um, I don't know why I don't catch on, but Truly, I don't. Every time we finished up a business plan and we executed, every time we did an engagement, we'd sit there and at the end, we'd check for these things called best practices and lessons learned. Best practices being the, hey, the things that worked really well, lessons learned are the things I really don't want to do again. And why I didn't do that in my life, I don't know. I don't know. It's this filter. You know, and this thing, um, I, I, I give my students this textbook. Actually, I give them two of them. And I expect them to read the text. And I expect them to get the most they can out of what the book says. Now, there are ways to, to do it, obviously. You know, you can read the big statements first. You read the headings. You read the summaries. You get the gist of it first. Then you go into the detail and get a little bit more flavor to it. That all makes sense. You put the big rocks in the thing first when you're trying to fill it up, and then you put the smaller rocks in, then you put the sand, then you put water, and you can get a lot more into the same space. We all know this in theory. I don't know why it took me as long as it did. But you know what I did learn, and it just blows me away. Some kid who was 13 years old, Bought me two days of sobriety one time. That does terrible things to one's ego. <laughs> 13 years old. 
right right one. And he brought it up because he was quoting right out of the first 164 pages. But our man is sure to be impressed with a sincere desire to set right the wrong. He's going to be more interested in a demonstration of goodwill than in our talk of spiritual discoveries. I can't tell you about how I found this thing I call God. I can tell you that I have tried to make amends where I've gone wrong. I can tell you that sometimes I have failed miserably. Since the first time I have gotten in front of people um, drunk and fallen in front of 1,500 sober, I have fallen in front of 1,500 people. You know, you live through those things. Um, I can tell you that I can tell my students what to be thinking of rather than what not to be thinking of now. I can tell you what feels good to me and what has worked for me. I can't tell you anything other than what's in the first 164 pages of this book. This is a textbook. I don't know why I didn't see this. I don't read the white parts. I should be reading the black text. Only what's in here. And yes, antiquated, and yeah, it's a little tedious reading, you know, and I need to know how to apply all this. I really do need to learn about what does work, and you're the, well, the rest of this book are my lessons learned and best practices. I go through this all the time. Why did I not see this? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Bill's story, chapter, uh, page 9. He was sober. This is not the best talk I've ever given. This is not the worst, but I can say on page 8, alcohol was my master. I'd met my match. From somebody who was trying to please everybody to somebody who can stand up for what I believe in and allow you to have your very own ways of thinking and find ways to collaborate and to find teamwork and to find community. That's not the person I was. You see me as other people never did. You see me with my heart sometimes bleeding out there. You see me when I am absolutely at my worst and absolutely at my best. Um, fast forward. I'm married to a guy that did not fit the picture. He, he wasn't tall, dark, and handsome like the rest of us. He was tall, blonde, and getting bald. I love him. Oh, I love this man like I cannot believe. He sat there the first time we had to go to a bar for a birthday, and I thought, oh, golly, what's going to happen here? And he slugged down a beer. He went, oh, this is it. Okay, this is it slugged down the second one and then took this third beer an hour and 22 minutes later. He's got that much of it. And I said, well, don't you want to finish this? He goes, well, no, it's warm. I do not understand that. 
the rest of the world understands this beautifully. He didn't have to work for that. I've been working for that my entire life. Now, I don't know how to stay sober other than not to drink. But you have taught me how to be emotionally sober, regardless of what's going on in the life. You've taught me when things are good, that's a perception. When things are bad, that's a perception. And you all collectively have given me the God of my understanding. For that, I'm entirely, <coughs> entirely grateful. And uh, that's my story. I'm sick of joy.